Welcome to Midlife Mastery. I'm, of course, the host, Brock Edwards. And on this podcast, we are always looking for ideas, information, inspiration for creating an amazing midlife and, in fact, an amazing second half of life. And on today's episode, we have Laura Freeman Williams. And she went from being happily married for over 20 years to being blindsided by her husband's affair. Divorced, she began a midlife journey of breaking out of her cocoon and rediscovering and reinventing herself. In this episode, we talk about that process for her and about a little bit about her new book, Available, A Memoir of Sex and Dating After a Marriage Ends. Now, this episode isn't really about relationships. It's more about how changing relationships were a catalyst for finding and becoming the person that she didn't know she was, if that makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense now. It will make much more sense after you listen to her. If you haven't caught some of the previous episodes, I do just want to highlight, we, recently we had Dr. Ellen Albertson back on the show talking about her book, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself. And that episode is pretty much just what that sounds like there. Uh, different approaches and ways to really create an amazing midlife. And we also had Blaine Wood talking about his own fitness journey and his approach to fitness. And that one's titled Ordinary Guy Exceptional Fitness. And I love the inspiration and the ideas that come out from talking with Blaine. So anyway, I'm hoping you're really ready to play bigger today. Let's get started. So today's guest is Laura Williams, who is author of the book Available, a memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends. So today's really about reinvention. I mean, that's kind of what, what the book is about. And so I guess, Laura, I mean, how do you introduce yourself to people beyond being mm -hmm. an author? That's a really good question because the, the way I always introduce people to myself to people, I think for many years was as the mom of the children I had, right? I'm so-and-so's mom. That was my that was my primary function, or I'm so-and-so's wife. Those were the really the the main roles of my life. And so now when I introduce myself. I still, when I say I am the writer of this book, it's still, I still have a little bit of that imposter syndrome. Like someone's going to come and say, well, you did it. Like you did that one thing. It was a little bit of a one-off that doesn't make you a writer. You're still primarily a mom and now someone's ex-wife. So I grapple with that still, because one of the things I think, you know, when we talk about reinvention that, that I think is interesting is of course, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a year or two either. I mean, it's not like you're designing a new product and you're saying like, I'm going to reinvent the way that, you know, people see people travel in cars or something and you work toward this product development. It's it happens very slowly and, and very gradually. And I'd say I'm still in the process of in, in that process of reinvention. Yeah. So, I mean, that almost sounds uh, very identity level. So if you're identifying yourself mm. as someone's mom or someone's wife, or, you know, some people identify through their job or, or whatever, that's not identifying through, through you and, and who you yes. are. And we could talk a long time about imposter syndrome <laughs> and all of that, <laughs> but I, I guess these days, so, you know, you're, you're still, you mentioned you're still a mom, you know, yep. you, been through a divorce and you have published a book and mm -hmm. by, by the way, through a Harper Collins imprint. So it's not, you know, that that's fairly significant. That, that's yep. a big publisher. Yeah. And so how, well, let me ask this, not how you identify yourself today, but how are you coming to identify yourself? 
Okay. So that's a good question too. I think as a person, as a woman, as a single person, you know, not, not a single, not, not meaning unmarried, but just as a human being without assigning roles to myself. And so it's very strange for me because really since I was 20 years old, I was with my husband. We met when we were very young. And then I, I worked in publishing for about 10 years in book publishing before when I had my second child, I decided to stay home. So the bulk of my adult life, I was home raising children, running a household, helping support my husband as he ran a business. And I think I always identified myself in relation to other people. So what I've discovered now, now I'm 51. Uh, my marriage ended when I was 47. It's been three and a half years. And what I discovered in this process is that I am my own person and that I have to value myself and also treat myself, respect myself as my own person, which means that sometimes I'm going to make decisions that are uncomfortable for other people or even uncomfortable for myself because I'm not used to doing these things, but that I am myself. And that was a very big like epiphany for me over the course of writing the book, over the course of sort of exploring myself sexually was to understand that I was a whole person, even when without being in relation to other people. That That's a big shift. Yeah. And Huge. how has that affected how others see you? Well, another good question. You know, I'm not, I think the people that see me, they still see me in my roles as like the people that are close to me, my family and my friends, they all still see me in my day-to-day life in relation to them, right? Like as their friend or as a, and they're very, the, I would say my friends are very proud of me. You know, they saw me when I was at a very low point of my life my friends and family when I was really like having trouble functioning because my marriage ended so suddenly and it was so traumatic for me that I think like they, they relate to me in the sense of still sort of wanting to protect me in some ways and hold me up and also being like cheering me on, you know, like you go, you're flying, keep going. So I don't think that they've necessarily you know, I don't, I don't think that they've changed. I think the hardest one was for my children, right? That relationship is so primal with your kids. Your kids are really in the best of circumstances. Your kids see you in a very narrow lens. Like you see your mom or your dad as your mom and your dad. You don't want to see them as like independent beings or sexual creatures. Like it's just all sort of unseemly to you, I think, as a child, especially if you're a teenager, which two of my three were at the time. So I think for them, it was hardest to accept that I, that I could have a private life that they would not necessarily be a part of and also remain true to them as their mother. That was so important to me was valuing my role. Like I, I didn't want to just say like, oh, I'm free and I'm reinventing myself and my kids will fend for themselves. It was never like that. It was always like my ki- I'm really devoted to my children. What they think and what they feel is very important to me. It's not like my daughter said to me, you know, this book, you're writing this book. It's so embarrassing to me that you're writing about your sex life. And I don't know why you would do something that's embarrassing to me. And it wasn't like I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. It wasn't like that. I struggled. I spent many a night awake. I had many conversations with my friends and my mother to say, is this okay to do? Even though it's going to hurt her, is it still okay for me to do it? 
So I, I think for the most part, you know, people like they love me, they take pride in in my efforts. I had a friend actually that just said to me, which I loved, she said, I don't want to say I'm proud of you because it, it makes me feel like I'm trying to take some owner of ownership of your achievement. I just want to say I'm really happy for you. It's really like lovely to see you thrive. That's awesome. How do strangers react differently to you now than four or five, 10 years ago? You know, I think I've always been a fairly open person. So when I'm interacting with strangers, like I, I've always been at ease, you know, meeting new people. I've always been a very like curious person. So I think I, I ask a lot of questions of people and it's not because I'm nosy. It's because I just want to like, I want to understand who people are on a deep level. I don't, you know, I don't want to just know about superficial things about people or their thoughts on, you know, weather or politics. I want to like really know who they are. So I don't think that's changed so much. I think that the funny thing is now strangers feel that they really know me. Strangers who have read my book feel they really know me intimately because I really bear myself in my book in emotionally and sexually. You know, I really just put it all out there. So a lot of people will say to me, I feel like you're an old friend now. I feel like I know you. And I love that. But I also think it's weird because I don't, it's not mutual. <laughs> you know, I don't know them. Uh, a friend of mine who is a podcaster also has mentioned that, you know, he's a, a physical trainer and he has clients who've maybe listened to 70 episodes. Like he's been in their wow. head 70 hours <laughs> and they come to him and He's happy to meet them, but <laughs> it's been a one-way conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing you're saying there. They yeah, they have funny. a sense of you, but you know, obviously you have no sense of them. Why? Well, I, well I guess, not it's oh, I was just gonna interrupt you for one second yeah. to say it's not no sense. And I want to say that because a lot of times when people say to me, I feel like I know you, I feel like if I resonated with you, then you must be a little bit like me. Like That's you must think a little bit like me, or you must have experienced something the way I experienced it. There has to be, there's some level already immediately to me of camaraderie or understanding between us. If you've read my words and they've meant something to you. So if you feel that you know me, then probably you're someone I want to know. So I, I wouldn't say there's not, you know, there's not nothing there. It's just, yeah. it's different. It's not totally mutual, but it, it has the seed of something. Like most people who reach out to me, I think I'd like to know you, you know, I'd like, right. you seem like someone I'd like to know. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted no, to that, add that. That's fantastic. And that's a, that's a very interesting distinction. I, I like that. And I guess I'm just kind of, kind of was, have been wondering, you know, for you, how are you showing up different in the world than kind of, because we're, we started off talking about reinvention. So yeah. prior to this transformation, this reinvention, how are you showing up differently? I think for me, like I was really pretty settled and happy in my life. You know, I, I was with my husband for a very long time. We had three children. I was living in like my dream apartment. We had our country house. I was involved in all the kids' schools. I had a huge community. So I felt like this is pretty good. Like what, what more could one aspire to? I've got healthy children. I've got a healthy marriage. I thought, I mean, that's another story. You know, I, I'm, I have all the trappings of a good life. And I kind of stopped at that. That was good enough for me. I liked being a good friend. I liked being part of my community. But there was like, I lived on a sort of day to day, like treadmill, you know, of like just, I made dinner, got the kids to bed, we did homework. Sometimes there'd be a special event, then it was on to the next thing. The way I feel now is that I, I feel a few things. One is that I feel like I look for the special 
almost every day. And it could be the smallest thing. It could be the smallest interaction that I have with someone or even something that I observe in somebody else. Like the world looks so much clearer to me now. I don't take everything for granted anymore. So I'm not really, I don't feel so much like I'm just sort of coasting through life as much as really experiencing it and being able to be in the moment. Not always, you can't always be in the moment, but when I can be very much in the moment, I am always surprised by the things I see, like interactions between people and what they trigger in me, the thoughts I have about them afterwards, things I want to write about, things I want to talk about, you know, just funny little things or serious things or things that break my heart. So that's one thing. The other way I think I show up differently in the world is that I feel I really, I think I used to always think, well, if that was me, I would do this. And there's always judgment in that, right? Like if my husband left me or if my kid got sick or if my, I I don't know, if I was having, whatever it could be, this is what I would do. And I understand now I would, I know nothing about other people and what they would do. And so I don't judge people for the choices they make or the ways that they handle things, because I understand that until you're in a situation, you have no idea what you would do. So I think that for me was a really big shift because I think in my mind, I think I was a little smug. I think I was a little smug. I had a really like great life and I figured it out. So like, why can't you? I don't have that feeling anymore. <laughs> you went through all this over, I mean, I know it didn't feel like a short period of time at the time. You mentioned several years, yeah. but you know, it is several years. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and you, you you wrote it as a memoir, which I often think of a memoir as, you know, a look back on a life, not just yep. a, a short set of years. So I guess what inspired you to to write the book? Well, I think originally I I sort of approached it as like, I I was really in a period when I started writing it, I was still reeling. You know, I was on this very strange point in my life when I had sort of spent like six months, like on the ground in a heap, trying to make sense of what had happened to me. You know, it's in in the book, uh, I write about the fact that I found out that my husband was having an affair and he was in fact in love with another woman. And we'd been together for 27 years and I thought we'd be together forever. And I really didn't see it coming. So the next six months I spent really in shock and devastated. And then I went out one night, I had a one night stand and it changed everything for me because it made me realize that there was like this whole other life I could have. So I started dating a lot and the stories of my dating were pretty funny. I was really just going from man to man to man. I was like sowing my wild oats but also I had no idea who I was or what I was. I didn't know what I was doing. So I just sort of thought, I'm just going to tumble along on these tracks until I can write myself. And I would tell friends about my stories and they were like, you know, you're such a good writer. You've always been such a good writer. You should write this stuff down. It's so funny. People will enjoy this. And so I I started it originally as a sort of commercial, like, yeah, why not? I got to do something with myself. I may as well do this. These stories are funny. Then when I started writing, I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I got to get real here. The funny is awesome. The, the, the funny stories and the like weird things that happen, you know, the dogs that get into bed with us or the, you know, condoms that get lost or, you know, whatever they're funny, but that's such a small part of the story. The bigger part is I am like breaking out of this cocoon 
and I am becoming something other than what I was. And that is true for so many people in midlife, whether or not they're coming out of a marriage or, you know, recovering from divorce. It is often just about the fact that midlife, you know, shakes us awake to a degree. So I wanted to share myself really openly. I love to write. I've always loved to write, you know, even just letters or speeches, you know, for parties or whatever it is. I've always loved to do that. And I thought, I want to express myself in words on the page. And so that was really my motivation. And then I thought, well, maybe it'll help some people. Maybe some people will see themselves in me. It will help. But really, it wasn't like an altruistic thing. It was really done because I wanted to express myself and express what I was going through. Because for many people go through this transformation, but when you're going through it yourself, you feel it is quite seismic. (laughs) You know, it's, it's like, you're really doing an about face in many ways, even though I look the same, you know, to people in my community, I don't feel at all the same inside. And I wanted to write about that, what that feels like on a very deep level. So as you were going through this writing process, I mean, so I, I mean, you're obviously learning about yourself on multiple levels. One level is just the life you're living and, you know, yeah. you're, you're learning and transforming and reinventing. And well, actually, before I ask that, let me ask, as you were just going through life, what did you learn about yourself? Well, I learned, first of all, that I thought I was happiest as a mom and a wife. And what I learned was that actually maybe I hadn't been so happy. Maybe I wasn't as fulfilled as I led myself to believe that maybe being uh, good enough was not good enough. You know, I think I'd really adopted that mentality of like the good enough. This is good enough. And I don't, and it wasn't. And in hindsight, I realized that. So I think that was part of it for me was looking back There's a lot of that, you know, looking back and thinking what I thought was great. Was it? Did I even want it when I had it? Would I ever want it again now that I don't have it? If I could get it back, would I? These were questions I asked myself all the time. So I think what I learned about myself was that, first of all, part of the book is really about sexual reinvention. And that was because I had lived, you know, I'd been sleeping with the same man for 27 years. And I think sex for me was something that had become more of a chore than anything else, like something that I did for him. He needed it. And like, it was sort of part of our marital agreement. And so it was very shocking to me to discover actually that I loved having sex, that I was a very sexual person and that that was a very important part of my life, that touch you know, was very important to me. I had really come to the point, you know, in my late forties with my husband where like, I didn't even want to be touched. I didn't want him to hold my hands. I didn't want him to kiss me on the cheek. I loved, I was physical with my children, but that was it. Even with friends, I would say, I'm not a hugger. You know, I was never like a physical person. And one of the shocking things to me was how physical I realized I was and, and have stayed. I'm always hugging friends or holding their hands. I love to be hugged now. I love to be kissed on the cheek, even just, you know, any, like any kind of symbol of, you know, physical affection. And that was a really big shift for me. Cause I think I had just closed that part of myself off. So that was a huge way in which I rediscovered myself. Now, and that's really interesting. Something so, so important to you that you were unaware of, was that just something that decreased over time? Just kind of habit feeding on habit was indicative of just, well, cause, and you mentioned it went beyond your, your, your husband. So it wasn't just your relationship with your husband. You mentioned even with friends, you're more physical now. And 
all yeah. of that. So I, and I don't know that you, you have an answer. Just very curious, yeah. just discovering that about yourself. <laughs> well, I came from a family that was not very affectionate. Like, I, I mean, a very, I had a, a very loving mom. She's super loving, but not a family. It wasn't like we were always, you know, with my, with my kids, we're like on top of each other a lot of the time, you know, and it wasn't like that in my house. We were not affectionate. And the first time my husband was super affectionate. And the very first time he came over to meet my parents, I remember saying to him, listen, don't hug my mother. She's not a hugger. And it's going to be super awkward if you hug her because he hugged everybody. He was like such, such an affectionate guy. And of course, he gives my mom a hug and I see her face is sort of like, who is this guy hugging me? And inside I'm like, oh, my God, don't be the weird guy that comes in and hugs my family. <laughs> and of course, what do you think the next day? My mom was like, well, I thought he was very, you know, and my brother was like 13 at the time. And he was like, ha ha, he hugged mom. And I, it was like a, it was a big thing. So I think that over the years, because he was so affectionate, I became like the opposite. You know, I like withdrew into myself. Mm. And I think that probably there was a loss of sexual connection between us. And I used as an excuse, well, I'm just not an affectionate person. You know, uh, well, the kids demand so much of me physically that I can't show up for you too. And those things are true on a certain level. But that wasn't the whole story. I think the whole story was I didn't feel it with him anymore. And so I think it did become a chore. And I don't blame him. I don't even really blame myself. I think it's just part of life's circumstances. I think when you have children, the physical dynamic really changes in a marriage. And, and that's hard. You know, that's really hard for people to get through. And no, I think, think you know, we, I didn't talk about it. I didn't know about it. I, it just sort of happened. And then I found myself in this place where I'd get together with my girlfriends and we would all laugh about like how we could get out of having sex with our husbands. Like that was the dynamic that we talked about. It wasn't like we never sat down and we're like, oh, I had the best sex last night or like, oh my God, we we just really like tried to get the kids away so we could just have this really romantic night. It was like, I heard my husband come home and turn out the lights really fast so that he would know that I was asleep and like wouldn't bother me, you know? That, and that was acceptable. That was like, again, it was good enough. Good enough. Well, what did you learn about yourself while writing the book? I mean, so you, I mean, you had what you learned about yourself through this life process, but I, I can't help but think that putting pen to paper, so to speak, you know, makes you process at a different level. Totally. That was really interesting. I think that for what one of the things I really learned, because it took me a while, you know, the, the book writing process took a long time. I wrote a proposal. I sold it. I wrote a draft. I turned it in. I rewrote the draft. I turned it in. I rewrote the draft again. So, you know, I was reading it over a period of time and so much kept changing for me. What I think I really learned about myself was that I had used partly like sex as a recovery when my marriage ended because it, it sort of gave me back myself. So I think when I was having, when I was going through my sort of wild uh, phase, you know, post-divorce. And I think a lot of people do this, men and women, where they've been in long relationships and they get out and then they just like go crazy. You know, it's like one night stands and things they've never done before and hooking up, you know, just all kinds of things. And I have I have heard, you know, people say that are like recovery coaches with therapists, like don't use sex as a grieving tool. But you know what? It actually really worked for me because it sort of gave me slowly myself back. And so when I was writing the book, I think I realized that it wasn't just fun and games. The sex wasn't just about having a good time and being like, I'm, you know, in my 48 and I can sleep with anybody I want. And I'm going to go crazy. It wasn't just that. There was that, but it was more than that. I was really like getting to know myself again. 
and giving myself the space to become a person on my own and a woman who could be things, as I said, to go full circle other than a wife and a mother, you know, that like sex for me, because it was so private, it was, it was on my own time. So if I had only a couple of hours free in a day and I would like have a tryst with a man in the middle of the day, that was like my time. Nobody was asking anything of me. Nobody was, you know, I wasn't making anyone food or helping with homework or, you know, doing paying bills. It was like just about me and taking care of myself. And so I think what I realized when I was writing the book was that sex was more than just physical for me, that it was also like a tool for really like getting deep into myself and like taking care of myself. I think I also realized that in writing the book, I reflected on my marriage a lot and on, you know, one of the interesting things was that I really never imagined I would be divorced. I never, I came from a home that had a lot of different iterations and, you know, deaths, divorces, et cetera. And I never wanted that for myself. And so there was a real level of guilt and shame for me in having, in passing that along to my children. But in writing the book, I realized when I reflected back on my marriage that I hadn't really been so happy. And I don't think I understood that until I started writing it down, until I really started looking back and thinking, well, why did I do that? Why was I kind of cold in that way? Why was I controlling in that way? And I don't think it was until I really started writing it out that I understood it wasn't just my husband driving that train. I was doing it in my own very passive way. Well, you mentioned that your readers, many of them feel connected to you, feel like they know you, something yeah. and it resonates for themselves. What do they tend to take from, from the book or what is the, I, I, there may not be a common theme, but I'm just kind of wondering, is there something that people seem to connect with more? Yeah, actually, I think a lot of women have said to me, I feel seen, you know, that first of all, they feel that the book gives them permission to go out and have sex with whoever they want to have sex with and do it on their own terms and to not worry if they're still technically married. You know, some women say, well, I've been separated for a few years and I'm working toward a divorce, but I'm not technically divorced yet. And so I've felt like, oh, I can't because technically I'm still married and that the they feel in reading the book, like, why can't I? Who says I can't? So that's one, one thing. I think the heartbreak you know, and the feeling of loss of identity, the real stripping of identity. That is a huge thing that a lot of women say to me. Like I have these kids. I, in fact, I just got a text this morning from a woman who has five children. She's married for 25 years. Her marriage has ended and she's struggling. And she said, you gave me, it was like therapy for me reading your book. I felt like it was therapy. And I think because I tried really hard to be very real and very authentic about the things that were good, the things that were bad, the parts that were hard, the parts that might always be hard. You know, there are parts that might continue to be hard for a long time to come. I don't pretend that like that, that this is easy stuff is it's worthwhile. I believe it's worthwhile. And I'm glad I'm in this position, but I don't think it's easy to emerge as a different person and with a different life than the one you thought you were going to have. So I think a lot of women just feel like they feel seen, like, yeah, this is what has happened to me. I feel like my total identity has been stripped, but now I have the, I see that I have the freedom to do what I want. Really, the only person telling me I can't is myself. 
think that's very shocking for a lot of people is when they stop and think, who says I can't do these things? Who says I can't have a one night stand? Who says I have to get remarried? Nobody. And that's the beauty of being in your midlife and independent. Nobody can tell you those things. You just do what you want to do. You know, it's funny, just we're, we almost never, as we're growing up, we have these decision points, right? You know, do I go to college? Do I, you know, yeah. go into the workforce? Do I get married? Do I buy a house? You know, up through about 30, there's some pretty big preset things that most people do, or at least decide whether to do or not to do. It's a conscious Mm -hmm. decision, but then we get to midlife and life's just kind of going along. Like there's often not this trigger to stop and think about it, or we don't realize without the trigger that, you know, on any given day, we can, we can redefine things like, yeah. <laughs> you know, we can stop and step back and think, do I, is this what I really want? Is this how I want to be? Is this who I, I want to be like we do earlier in life? And so I, I find that, find that interesting. And I guess I was also tying it to, I mean, obviously for you and, and for a lot of the readers that you just mentioned, that trigger was, well, divorce was at the central of it, but obviously there was more going on there that caused kind of the, the reassessment. And I, I think that's more observation than question, Laura, but, but just kind of <laughs> as you're, as you're uh, pulling, pulling all these pieces together. And I'd heard recently, and I, I don't know, I don't know the actual numbers, but that divorce actually goes up in midlife. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's where the highest percentages of divorce occur, which is surprising. I would have thought it would have been, you know, kind of in the first few years, mm. you realize you don't like each other or whatever, and you, know, you move on. It, it's easiest to divorce at that point. Perhaps I, I don't know. And I know you're not a marriage counselor, but you've had your own experience and you've spoken to a lot yeah. of people and you've got your readers. Why is it from your observation that divorce might go up kind of at this stage of life when we think, Hey, I'm finally getting this figured out. You know, I, I know my life path and then it, it changes. I don't think the idea, I mean, midlife crisis is a cliche, but sometimes cliches exist for a reason because there's a real kernel of truth in there. And I believe that to be so in midlife, you know, maybe from the time that your kids are starting to become more independent. Like I think when your children are young, you're in such a fog of just getting through and probably wanting more children. You know, you have one, then you have two, then you have three. You're just like, you're still moving through it. And you're like, you're really in the trenches. And then you come up for air and you realize, wait, this this is all there is. Like, this is what it's going to be now. This is what my next 50 years look like. And I think for a lot of people, what I'm finding, which is really interesting in a lot of my friends, is that this is, a lot of it is tied into people becoming empty nesters. So in my case, when I projected forward and thought, okay, this is my life for the next 50 years, that was fine with me. I, I was fine with it. I had no, there was no part of me, which is partly why, by the way, I wrote the book was because I was the least likely candidate to be where I am now. I really feel that way. I was quite content. And my husband wasn't. He wanted something different. You know, the lack of passion that we had in our relationship, the lack of newness, the lack of curiosity that we had about each other, the way that we were really sort of living parallel lives, but in the same home, that was not good enough for him anymore. He wanted something more. And I'm seeing that in a lot of my friends also, where they feel like, okay, I did that. I raised my kids. I had the big house. You know, I lived in one place so that the kids could have it. I had the big Thanksgiving every year. I had the big Fourth of July party every year. I had, you know, I was known for these certain events and I don't want to do it anymore. 
I'm done. And I'm seeing that in a lot of my friends, which is fascinating to me because when my husband and I broke up, we were the first to break up and I felt extremely alone and embarrassed. Like I would look around and think, you guys made your marriage work. Like you guys bicker all the time or this, whatever they're doing. And like, you guys can make your marriage work. And I can't, I was so like really humiliated. I felt that I'd always been a person that people came to for advice and resources. I was like a really like a go-to person. And I, then I felt like such a fraud, like what kind of a go-to person was my, my life was exploding underneath me. I didn't even notice it until it was like, you know, the bomb went off. But what I see now, because I'm seeing it in so many friends, is that I think we come to a realization in midlife that everything is a compromise. When you get married in your 20s or early 30s, you're young and you you want babies, you're working towards something, right? You're working toward building a family and building a life. And then when you get it, you realize it's not everything that you built it but there's compromise. And the compromise might be, well, I've got a partner and we really love each other and we'll always take care of each other, but the passion is gone. Or we have great sex still and the passion is still there, but we want totally different things out of life now. And really what is holding us together, but the fact that we're together, the fact that we've always been together, that's what's, you know, we're the children, but what else is holding us together? And so I'm he- hearing from very you know, close friends of mine, I want something different. I don't know what it is. And I'm, by the way, I'm terrified I might never find it. But if I don't give myself the chance now, then when will I? I'm wondering about communication. So it seems like, it, I mean, it sounds like we, we get in our habits, we get in our ruts, we, how, we, how we live together. So I'm, you know, I'm assuming communication is also a habit that we get into. Yeah. But... How do we improve that? Like, like, how do we bust out of that habit that has us waking up one day going, yeah, this isn't quite where I want to be and understanding better of where the other person's at as well. So at least if it's not where we want to be, we're coming to this conclusion together and not, you know, just being a surprise one day. Yeah. I think part of it is, is about making yourself heard. And part of it is having the ability to listen. And that, I mean, that is the core of communication, right? But you, you can, I mean, I, I thought my husband and I actually communicated really well. I thought he listened to me when I said things. I thought I listened to him and respected it. But then it was sort of like we heard each other and then went back to our own thing. And I don't always think people listen to each other and really adapt. You know, I, I think I remember my husband pointed out to me once uh, after we split up, when I said how I didn't see it coming, you know, at all. And I was so devastated. He said, do you remember that day we were in the pool with like our youngest child? And I, I looked at you and I said, I'm not happy. And you were sort of like, what are you even talking about? Like happy, what you're not happy being in this pool right now. You're not happy like in life. You're not happy with the business. What do you mean? And he said, I don't know. I'm just not happy. And I was like, okay, time to get out, make dinner. Like I didn't really, I didn't take it very seriously. And when I look back at it, he, he was asking me for help. You know, he was saying something to me. He was looking to me for this conversation and I didn't take it with the seriousness with which he intended it. I'm not blaming myself. I think he needed to say to me, I have to talk to you about this. It's really weighing on me. It's not just a floating feeling that's going to be gone in five minutes. This is something I'm feeling and it's building in me. So he needed to say it in a way that I could hear it 
and I needed to take it seriously. And that is one of the things I hear over and over again from my friends who are splitting up right now is I told her for years I wasn't happy or I told him for years I needed more and they didn't do it. They didn't take me seriously. And now it's over. So I don't know how, you know, I think that there is just a commitment that couples need to make that slow down. I think my husband and I, if we had made more time for each other, that would have helped if our communication was more one-on-one and less like, you're not happy. Okay. Well, we're swimming with a three-year-old right now. And like the other kids are about to come home and we got to get dinner started. But you know, if we had spent more time, if we had dedicated more time to sitting the two of us to check in with each other, I mean, I think couples therapy is amazing and it doesn't mean that anything is broken. It just means you're working on things. Like I think if we had started doing that earlier to say something's missing, what, what can we do? I think there's a lot of tools that people have at their disposal. I, it didn't even occur to me I needed them. So I didn't use any of them. And I think my husband, that's not, I don't think that's his strong suit. You know, I think it's like, he didn't even know what he was feeling. I don't think that he, he's not, you know, my girlfriends and I will sit around and talk about this stuff for hours. I don't think he was doing that with his friends or his people to get in touch with how he was feeling. So it was like, it was like a valve that had just gotten turned off. So I agree with you. I think communication is everything, but you have to realize first that you're not even communicating well. And I don't know how you do that when you think you're doing a great job of it. <laughs> it's, it's a really, it's a really tricky cycle. Well, it, it, it is, it is. And just, you know, I say, just think about, we get into habits over time and it's not like we suddenly stop communicating or stop listening one day. It, you know, that was probably a decade of a yep. little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit of a habit. Oh, got busy. Want to come back to that conversation and never do. And then yep. just one day you no longer have the habit of communicating the way you did when early on in the relationship. Yeah, I think that's very true. And there's so many other factors now, like when it was just the two of you sitting over dinner with a glass of wine, looking at each other and waking up in the morning together in bed and having the chance to talk. That's one thing when now you've added children into the mix or business, multiple homes, parents get sick. You know, there's so many things that compete. And if you don't say specifically, I'm going to carve out this time with you, it just goes by the wayside. It's the first, in my house, it was the first thing to go, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, you, you mentioned couples therapy and it, it strikes me that perhaps one of the big benefits beyond anything that the therapists can provide is it's a set time to sit down and actually talk to each other. Yeah. And to listen, to make yeah. sure this is the other thing is to make sure that you're listening to each other. I don't think that I don't think my husband and I were very good at listening to each other on a deep level. And when we finally did go to couples therapy, I say it was too late, but we did listen to each other finally. In fact, I remember him saying to me, there had been something he had been doing for like 30 years that had uh, really been troubling to me. And I expressed it in couples therapy one day. And he said, oh, that's why that upset you? If only I had known that sooner, I would have responded totally differently. And I was just incredulous. I thought for 30 years, you've been doing this thing that I've been telling you I don't like. And just now you're listening with a third party in the room. It's almost like maybe for like your 20th anniversary or your 10th, like milestone anniversaries, the gift should be couples therapy. Like forget the diamonds, forget the, you know, silver, like it's our 10th anniversary. It's time for three months of couples therapy at 20 years. It's time for six months. Like it should just be, that should be the anniversary gift. 
<laughs> think, think how many marriages might be saved. Absolutely. <laughs> if it was just mandatory because a lot of people think they don't want to go because it's, it means something's broken. And right. that's embarrassing or that makes them feel vulnerable or, you know, whatever they they're not into therapy, you know, whatever it is. But if it was just mandated, like you, it's like a checkup, you got to yeah. do it. So as we start kind of kind of wrapping up here today, well, what else do you want people to know about the book? Well, the book is, you know, I think it's, it's got this like giant juicy peach on the cover. So, you know, I think what my publisher was really going for the angle of like reinvent sex, sexual revolution and reinvention in midlife, which I love. And I, I love talking about it. And I, and I think it's very important, but I think what's also really important is that it's, it's my story and my very true story and often very painful story. I mean, a lot of people talk about the book. They say it's very funny and the dating stories often are funny, but the, the authentic part of it and the painful part of it is that I was doing those things, having those dates against the backdrop of acknowledging that my marriage was over and of grieving the loss of the marriage. And that those two things, the moving on and the grieving are not mutually exclusive. And so I think when I was writing the book and what I hope that people will get from the book is that all of these things can happen at the same time. You can actively grieve for the end of something while also embracing what could come next. You don't need to write off one to have the other. And I think that gives per people permission to keep moving forward. You know, I always say it's like it's baby steps. When I, when I first, when my marriage first ended, I used to coach myself out of bed in the morning. And I used to always say to myself, and I would visualize it because I did not want to get out of bed. I would say, put one foot down, put the next foot down and start walking. And I would just picture myself walking across the room. And it was like every step I took was a big step. Every step I took to get to the bathroom, to brush my teeth, to wake up my children, to get them to school, to function. So I want people to know it's, it's not just about sex. It's really also the story of recovery. And that could be anything that's ever happened in your life that's painful, not just divorce, anything that where you feel that the rug has just been ripped out from underneath you, that you will tumble and you, there is a way of writing yourself. You will eventually get yourself straight up again. Well, other than the book, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Well, I'm on lots of social media. So I'm on Instagram at Laura Friedman Williams. And I love it when people reach out to me and I always respond because I'm, I, I just, I find people, you know, reaching out very moving. It moves me. And I often reach out to writers when, and podcasters, when I hear things that move me, I always want people to know that the effects they've had on me. So I love to hear from people on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, but Instagram is my preferred, my preferred one. That's the, the one I like the most. And I also do a lot of writing on Medium. I write personal essays on Medium about family and parenting and divorce and relationships. I have a bunch of pieces on there that have been published. So people, if they just Google me, Laura Friedman Williams at Medium, they can read snippets of my writing. And then of course there's the book. So there's lots of ways to reach me. If you want to find me, you will find me <laughs> and, and I will, and I will respond to you. Excellent. Well, this has been fantastic having you on today, Laura. Thank um, you. A lot of fun. And, you know, a lot of times we're, we're talking about reinvention in more of a academic sense, you know, mm. kind of here's the steps to reinvention versus 
here's what you just lived through and what you learned from it. And, you know, frameworks are nice, but the interpersonal experience, I, I think we need both. And so I, I yeah. love this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate that because I think it's true. I mean, I I listen to a thousand podcasts, you know, I, I'm always interested in knowing how other people do it. And I think that when you hear how other people have done it, just knowing they've done it is enough to make you think it's worth trying, right. you know, that you, you don't, you may not, you don't always, you can't see, I wouldn't have seen myself here right now, having written a book and being on a podcast, talking to you about reinvention of midlife, but you just know that something is possible. You get started. It's, and that's, I think what we have to do for each other, right? Is to cheer each other on to say, whether it's in an academic paradigm or just an emotional one or however it is, it can be done. It's worth doing. Definitely so. Well, thank you so much for being on today, Laura. Thank you, Brock. This was so much fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. So much for listening today. I have two quick asks of you. The first one is simply to share this podcast episode with your friends that you know would really enjoy it and really benefit from hearing it. The second thing is to leave a review. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can, of course, do it through the app or however you're listening to it. Or you can just go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash midlife mastery. Lovethepodcast.com forward slash midlife mastery. And that will give you several options to be able to leave a review. Just a, a quick rating and a few quick words about what you really enjoy about the podcast in general or what you enjoy about the particular episode. The reviews really help other people discover and find this podcast and also benefit from it. And it provides great feedback for me to know what you're really enjoying about the podcast, what you're getting out of it. And so I can do even more of that. And because this, this show really grows from, from word of mouth, from people sharing it, from people leaving reviews. In fact, we're now in 45 different countries. I am super excited about that. I it just love that. These issues are a global experience, right? It's not, ju not just us going through this alone, but people around the world can relate to being in midlife and trying to figure it out and wanting to create a phenomenal midlife. So thank you so much.